just a few weeks ago, I was asked by a journalist, in fact, to talk to a woman who'd volunteered to take part in a, in a TV programme. And the journalist was worried about her because she'd expressed very, very pessimistic thoughts. And he knew that she had a history of psychological distress. And she'd started to talk about the futility of life and whether it's worth continuing and even talking about suicide. So he asked me to talk to her. And I talked to her and I obviously got her consent and then reported back to the journalist. And the story is obvious. She was being interviewed for a programme about the cost of living crisis. She couldn't afford the rent on her flat. The Mm. flat had a leaking roof that was causing water to pour in onto her children's beds. She and her partner both worked, but they worked for the minimum wage and they could barely afford to keep the rent on this apartment. They couldn't afford much in the way of enjoyments in life. And if she had left the flat, which was unlivable, she would be making herself voluntarily homeless and the local authorities would not house her. Of course, she's depressed and anxious. I reported this back to the journalist who went, how refreshing. I've always thought these things are brain diseases. So to locate the problem inside somebody's head by instead of saying, I understand why, given the circumstances of your life, you're depressed and anxious, to say that she's got an illness called major depressive disorder detracts Mm. us from the social circumstances that would make any of us, were we to be in those situations, depressed and anxious. Um, Peter Kinderman, I'm Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Liverpool, where I've been for for many years. I was the President of the British Psychological Society, and generally I've been involved with mental health care all of my life. Uh, I started my career working full-time on acute psychiatric wards, uh, moved on to what are called psychiatric intensive care units, the, the locked units for people detained under the Mental Health Act. And then drifted into academia, continued to work as a clinical psychologist, still work as a clinical psychologist. Good morning, good day, good evening to you wherever and whenever you are, you heroes. Stoked to be here with you again. I hope you've been well. Today we have the first of three episodes in a series that is a discussion between myself and esteemed academic Professor Peter Kinnaman. In this episode, part one, we are going to explore Peter's reservations with the entire concept of mental illness. Yes, you heard me correctly. Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Liverpool and the former president of the British Psychological Society, believes that we in contemporary society, what we refer to as an illness, is simply an adoption of a metaphor gone wrong. In no way, shape or form is Peter suggesting that there is no problem to be solved, nor that a great many people aren't suffering from a problem that needs to be solved, but that to regard an individual's response to adverse environmental conditions as an illness or disease can actually be quite harmful in that it obstructs us from uncovering the true drivers of emotional or psychological discomfort. Hope you find that interesting. I sure as hell do. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. Fantastic. That That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you, sir. I wonder if you might like to talk about this mental health illness mm-hmm. disease prevention model slash metaphor. So I prefer to use straightforward phenomenological descriptions. I'm a little bit wary these days even of talking about things like mental distress because... Mm people are not always distressed. 
You know, so so if my mode of operating with the people close to me is defensive and antagonistic, it might create problems, but I might not even see those as problems. I might not be distressed. What, I, what I'm being is defensive and antagonistic. That's what I am. To even say that is a manifestation of mental distress, maybe, maybe not. So I think stick to the actual phenomena them, themselves. But even that's complicated. So I'm quite happy, for instance, talking about the human experience of depression. In my judgment, people get depressed. In my professional opinion, I think there's a cluster of phenomena, probably born out of our neuroscience, where fatigue, low mood, pessimism, you know, failure to anticipate positive things in the future, self-regret, low self-esteem. There's a, there's a cluster of related sub-phenomena that can be usefully clustered as a phenomenon of depression. And I think anxiety, often depression and anxiety co-occur, of course, but there is a thing of anxiety where you anticipate something bad happening in the future. So terms like anxiety and depression, I think, are, are valid terms. People are anxious, people are depressed. It's worth understanding why and it's worth doing something to help them. But even the terms like depression, are, are you using the term depression to refer to a common, if problematic, human experience, like grief? Or are you using it to refer to a disease, major depressive disorder or clinical depression or something else? So these little signifiers, clinical depression or major depressive disorder, they tend to creep into our language. My, my stance is that the phenomena that we're dealing with collectively, whether you're the sales rep of a pharmaceutical company, a professor of biological psychiatry, um, somebody who is, I think, shamefully, but you know, exploring whether modern versions of lobotomy have any place in mental health care. I think what we're dealing with here are some pretty understood phenomena, depression, anxiety, hearing voices, paranoia, self-harm, uh, restricting your calorie intake. We know these phenomena. Now, my position is those definitely exist. And I would go further. I think that phenomena like depression and anxiety are very major problems in our society. I think it's true that either the most common or the second most common cause of death in young people in the UK vying with road traffic accidents is death by suicide. So whatever's going on in terms of phenomena like depression and anxiety, they're problems. They're things that we collectively should deal with. And then the question is, how should we both deal with them and how should we think about it? And that's where the clickbait headline of does mental illness exist becomes perhaps useful because- I think it's very useful. The, the phenomena exist and the phenomena ruin people's lives. But I think to think of them as illnesses detracts us from a useful path. So what the illness concept does is it locates the problem inside the person. Even if you take a sort of psychological illness model, so a sort of model coming out of cognitive behavior therapy that uh, I, Peter, am depressed because I have a depressive disorder, which is a product of my negative thinking. So it doesn't even have to involve brain pathology. But that model still locates the problem in me. It, it's mm. me and my thinking that is the problem. So just as an example, just a few weeks ago, I was asked by a journalist, in fact, to talk to a woman who'd volunteered to take part in a, in a TV programme. And the journalist was worried about her because she'd expressed very, very pessimistic thoughts. And he knew that she had a history of psychological distress. 
And she'd started to talk about the futility of life and whether it's worth continuing and even talking about suicide. So he asked me to talk to her. And I talked to her and I obviously got her consent and then reported back to the journalist. And the story is obvious. She was being interviewed for a programme about the cost of living crisis. She couldn't afford the rent on her flat. The Mm. flat had a leaking roof that was causing water to pour in onto her children's beds. She and her partner both worked, but they worked for the minimum wage and they could barely afford to keep the the rent on this apartment. They couldn't afford much in the way of uh, enjoyments in life. And if she had left the flat, which was unlivable, she would be making herself voluntarily homeless and the local authorities would not house her. Of course she's depressed and anxious. I reported this back to the journalist who went, how refreshing. I've always thought these things are brain diseases. So to locate the problem inside somebody's head by instead of saying, I understand why, given the circumstances of your life, you're depressed and anxious, to say that she's got an illness called major depressive disorder detracts Mm. us from the social circumstances that would make any of us, were we to be in those situations, depressed and anxious. But it goes further. Once you start thinking about it in terms of an illness, you bring in the illness metaphor. What's an illness? An illness is a pathology of the body. The chemical imbalance hypothesis still being promoted today suggests that not only is this young woman depressed and anxious because she's got an illness, a problem, but the illness is that her serotonin system is dysregulated in some fashion. And then, of course, it goes further. People are spending enormous amounts of money on looking for genetic reasons. So you've got a young woman whose life is a life that if you and I were projected into it, we would be depressed and anxious. But no, 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 no. Let's see whether we can find some genetic abnormality that might be causing a pathology of her brain to make her respond in the most understandable and predictable way possible. So I think the illness metaphor is wrong. A little bit worried about does mental illness exist because many, many millions of people are depressed and anxious. And to suggest that mental illnesses don't exist could be misinterpreted as meaning that you don't have any problems. And that's where the right wing comes in, because it's quite useful to say you don't have any problems. That's just like, get on with it. Vote Trump and then life will be great. Brexit. I mean, the economy is ruined, but it's not anything social that's responsible for your misery it's entirely down to you personally mm. you know, either you've got a bad brain or you, you're unlucky enough to have bad thing uh, dismiss it move on the problem of saying mental illnesses don't exist which is not a, a claim that i would support i i would not say mental illnesses don't exist i would say it the problem with that is it implies there's no problem there's there's no problem to be solved and there are problems and they need to be solved Using the illness metaphor is the, the wrong way to approach it. Sorry, that was an extraordinarily long sentence. And oh, I needed that. No, no, that, that that was really good. That's a great foundation for us to, for me to then move to this next point here. So could you please just say whether you agree or disagree with this statement and then maybe just provide a little bit of context or some of your thoughts, please. So the origins of mental and emotional stress are largely social. Yes. I agree with that. I think putting numbers on these things is a little bit difficult. I I was taught as an undergraduate that the interaction between genes and environment is always going to be 50-50, because if there's a tiny, tiny, tiny little genetic variance in an organism that would give it an advantage, it will exploit whatever 
environmental differences there are and vice versa if there's a tiny tiny environmental difference then people with different genes would will, will find that environmental advantage and I mean, that's how evolution works evolution evolution works by protein differences between us giving us a tiny advantage that leads to, to, to massive consequences so i think putting numbers on it is a little bit dubious but as a sort of uh metaphor or analogy if you lined 100 people up and right at the exit door was somebody who is so distressed, so that you'd section them under the Mental Health Act, they wouldn't be able to make decisions for themselves, that they would be on the point of suicide. And right at the other end is me, of course, with my, my absolutely perfect mental health and uh, approaching the world in the most ideal way. And you think of a regression equation, which is the predictors predicting where on that line people are. It's my strong opinion based not on personal prejudice, but on the data that I see, that individual differences, differences between you and me in terms of our genes, would move us 5% up the line or 5% down the line. But differences in the experiences that we've had in life will move us to the top or to the bottom of life. So there might be, if you, if you play around with the stats, if you do high quality genetic molecular research, if you have sufficient people, you might find that genetic differences between people might have a very, very small impact on their risk of developing problems in given situations. But we absolutely know that life circumstances do lead to depression and anxiety. It, it, it's, it's just given. So I put it as sort of 95% of the variance is explained by social factors, 5% of the variance explained by genetic differences. Like that example that you... Uh, gave with the journalist where, I mean, in some ways, you might say that uh, if the woman who was miserably depressed and anxious about becoming homeless, etc., and her kids getting rained on, blah, 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 that if she wasn't miserable and depressed and incredibly anxious, there'd be something wrong with her. Yeah. And, and I think two things about that. The first is, you know, if you were, I don't think as a psychologist we'd be able to, but let's say that you find... I know, maybe they're a fast jet combat pilot for the Royal Australian Air Force, right? Top flight genes, just the most responsive to environment person you can find. You just check them out a bit and make sure that they're nice to their kids. And then you go, right, I'm going to make you homeless and stick you in a shit flat and see how you cope. Maybe that person might have an advantage over you and I but they're still going to be depressed and anxious. It's just going to impact on them. And evolutionarily, I think that there's a strong argument for that. Evolutionary psychology is a little bit just so stories, but we've got to have a system as a complex self-aware organism that says, hang on a minute, there might be something nasty under that woodpile. I'm just going to be cautious about rifling through that pile of twigs, mm. just in case there's a scorpion in it. Because if we didn't have the biological components of a brain that allows us to be anxious, we would have died before we'd had children because the scorpions would have got us. Yeah. And if we're sitting there and we're thinking, and yeah, we're sitting there in, the, in, in a mud hut somewhere, and uh, you know, our spouse says to us, I'm a bit worried about the potatoes. I think that we might have a problem with the irrigation system for our potatoes. And if we don't have a harvest of potatoes, I'm not sure we're going to be able to feed the kids over the winter. And the spouse goes, nah, be all right. 
then you die. So mm. pessimism, depression, give up, stop. It's making things worse is probably a pretty useful mechanism that we've got. And stop, mm. whoa, that's dangerous is a pretty useful mechanism. And there are other useful mechanisms. So, you know, casting ourselves forward, you know, lots of us experience bullying at school or our parents abuse us. It might not be the world's best defense mechanism to dissociate, but it might just keep you alive. I, I was once in a bar in New Orleans and there was a great band on. It was fantastic. And then they paused and then there was a third band coming up that me and my partner were waiting for. And this duo got on stage and they were just rubbish. And so I was standing at the bar thinking about why there were rings around Saturn or um, how the chromatophores on an octopus work. Uh, and Sarah said to me, Are you dissociated, Peter? And I went, well, yeah, because the band's shit. Dissociation, it's, you know, it's a thing that we have. So evolutionarily, lots of the things like pessimism, give up now. It's not working. Anxiety, things may be going bad for you, worry about it. And even things like dissociation, you know, if you're going to survive pain, think about something else. There are lots of evolutionary advantages to these psychological processes that, that might have psychological consequences. So yeah, people differ. Uh, people's responses to circumstances differ. We do become depressed. We do become anxious. We do sometimes drift away from reality. Mm. I don't see any of those as illness processes. I see those as probably useful survival mechanisms within the remit of psychological mechanisms that we have as humans. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. The next episode in this series builds on this idea that we need to concentrate on social drivers of psychological distress if we are going to effectively address what we are describing right now as mental health. In particular, we dive into the concept of white knuckling or how a changing economy, for example, a recession, affects the mental health of so many people and in particular men. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to see us produce more content like this, then you can help to support the work we are doing on Here For Each Other. All you need to do is share it with one other person who you believe would value it. Not asking you to spam your mates, just to share it with one other person. That's all from me and I look forward to being with you next time. Have a great day.